This moment, do you truly believe that God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be? Do you? As you probably noticed, I'm not Sean. Uh, <laughs> I'm almost literally twice the man Sean is, but that's not necessarily good. <laughs> no, Sean, Sean is, is here today, as is his wife, but we planned this a while ago because uh, we are hoping to add one more member to the press family, uh, hopefully this week, uh, <laughs> as she is about to have their third child. And so we said, Sean, you need to be able to uh, be flexible and be ready to go whenever you need to. So let's just plan on, uh, on me stepping in today so that that's not a, that's not a stress that uh, you guys have to deal with. Um, but I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to uh, always to be part of what's happening in press uh, in, in the community of Delaware County. Uh, and for those of you online, welcome. Uh, we are so glad that you have joined us, and uh, we hope that you also are, are ready to hear what God has for us today. Uh, if you do have your Bibles and you want to actually open to a passage, uh, we're not going to get to it for a minute, but I'll give you time at least. Uh, I'm going to be in Philippians, and I'll start in chapter 3. Uh, but if you uh, want to uh, work ahead, some people I know like to plan ahead on these things, and, and that's fine. You know, the last few weeks, we have been talking about this concept that uh, we we're calling dangerous grace. Um, it, it's, it's dangerous because God offers us this grace knowing that we could abuse it, we could reject it, uh, knowing that as he freely gives to us forgiveness and mercy that we could easily use it in a bad way. And so it's dangerous. It's dangerous because when we in turn offer it to others, extend grace to others, we could, we could lose reputation. We could lose, uh, we could be put in bad situations where other people may talk about us, where, where we may be in situations where people, we could get burned because we're offering this grace to others. And, and yet, the way this church is structured, our, our whole philosophy of doing things is that we want to make a difference in the community. And in order to do this, we know that we need to always be connecting with God. We need to always be in fellowship with each other, communing with each other. We also know that we need to have influence on the world around us. And to do that in the way God calls us means to offer dangerous grace. Grace that makes us vulnerable. And just, you know, we've touched on this before, but in, in quick review, you know, the idea of grace is unmerited favor. In other words, you are given something you don't deserve. And that's exactly what God did for us. 
We also talk about mercy, but you know, there's a slight difference and nuance in those words. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Right? If you deserve to be punished and you deserve discipline and yet that is withheld, that's a mercy. But grace is when God comes and says, not only am I not going to punish you, I am going to now extend to you a gift, something that you don't deserve, simply because I love you and I want to. And he does that. It's almost a, it's almost a ridiculous grace. It's crazy. Why would he do that? But... He does. And that grace doesn't require you, it doesn't require you to do anything to earn it or to keep it or to maintain it or to fulfill it. And yet, when we read in Scripture over and over, this grace compels us to do things, something. It, it pushes us to say, okay, I've extended this grace, now, now you get the opportunity to respond. You get the opportunity to, do, to grow in that grace. This isn't a passive, oh, God's just going to hand me everything and I never have to do every, anything in my life. It's an invitation to be part of something where I get to engage it as well and I get to grow and flourish in the midst of it. I, I want to talk about today the, the work that grace invites us into. And, and, and it's not a work to keep God happy with you. It's not a work to make sure, oh, if, as long as I do these things, God will keep giving me grace. That's, that's not grace. It's a work that says, I'm going to invite you into something that will help you become all that I've called you to be because I've gifted you with this love that you didn't deserve. And now I want to see you grow in it. When I was, um, I, I grew up my teenage years basically in the 80s, right? Um, some of you might identify with this. Uh, and, and I was, of course, grew up in Kentucky, so basketball was the thing. I mean, there wasn't, you know, football happened, but that was really just to pass the time until basketball season started. Uh, you know, living here for the last, I've actually lived now in Ohio longer than I lived in Kentucky growing up, but I still think of football as that thing we do until basketball starts. I know that's not the way it is around here, but <laughs> that's just, you know, it's, it's taken me a while to unlearn that, right? But, you know, growing up, there was, there was this one basketball star that everybody wanted to be like. I want to be like Mike, Michael Jordan. Like, I mean, I remember playing in the backyard, right? And, and I was one of those weird kids who shoveled the driveway in the middle of winter so I could shoot baskets because I grew up in Kentucky. That's what you do. That was normal. That wasn't strange. And, and so I grew up, and I remember, you know, in 1982, he's playing for North Carolina, Wins the national championship on the shot, just about 15 feet out. I remember it. I've watched it. I've relived it. And then he signs a contract with Nike, right? He's got the Air Jordans. Everybody had Air Jordans. Or at least you were trying to or you drew it on the side of your generic version because <laughs> we didn't have money for that and good enough, right? Because we all wanted to be like Mike. We'd, we'd, every time you jumped, and, and let's be honest, my vertical was not amazing, Okay. <laughs> But when I jumped, my tongue went out because that's what Mike did, okay? We, we all had this ideal of what we wanted to be, and it was just embodied in this one person. And as I read Scripture, I see that there is the same concept that we as followers of Christ need to understand. There is someone that we can be like, that we should strive to be like, and the grace that God has given us gives us the opportunity to actually move in that direction, 
to become all that he has created us to be. We don't have to stick our tongue out when we jump to do it. But we can become what God has called us to be, and we see that embodied in Christ. He is the ideal. In Philippians chapter 3, which is where we, part of the inspiration of the name of this church even, in in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, and and Paul is most likely in prison, either in Ephesus or in Rome. We're not sure exactly where. It depends on when this letter actually was written. But he's in jail, right? And, And he writes to them all this stuff. And out of it, he says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved the things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I press on to become like Christ. I press on every day. I'm moving forward trying to embody what God has made me to be, what God has called me to be, what God in his grace has given me the ability to move toward. And what does he move on toward? Perfection completion, right? It's not that I'm perfect and never mess up. It's called I'm moving into being completed in Christ. And that's only because of grace. It's not because I can do all the right things or I can, you know, follow the right rules or I can make God love me so much because I earn all this, all this, this change in my pocket that I get to cash in for perfection. No, it's simply I've been given this grace and so now I want to lean into that. I want to live that way. In uh, Romans, Paul also writes about this, and he, he tells the people in Rome, and um, he says, listen, you know, this grace was given to you when you didn't deserve it. He says in, in, in Romans, Romans 5, he says, listen, while you were still sinners, Christ came. While you were enemies of God, Right? Not just, oh, I hope I make him happy. No, when you were actively opposing him, Christ came for you. That's grace. You, you, he's not telling you do all this stuff so that God loves you and God reaches out to you. He says, no, no, because he already did. In um, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, he says the same thing. He says, listen, while you were dead in your sins, God took the first step. God reached out. So if God took the initiative and and God says, nothing you do is going to make you good enough for me to reach out to you because I already did. I already love you. I've already made you right with me through the work of Christ. Then then why would we press on, (laughs) right? I mean, I nailed it, right? Or God nailed it and now I don't have to do anything. Why why work at this? And yet Paul says to and, and I want you to see, when you, if you read the entire book of Philippians, and it's only four chapters, it's a letter, right? If you get a letter from a friend, you don't read it section by section. You know, today I'm just going to read the first part, and tomorrow I'm going to wake up and read the rest. And No, 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 you, you, you read the whole thing. And if you read this thing all the way through, because Paul wrote to this church, you see there's some big picture things happening. And, and so he looks at them and he says, okay, first I, I want to introduce myself, et cetera, and so forth. He gets to chapter two, and he quotes what we call the Christ hymn. And it's this section that seems to be uh, an early confession of the church, where it takes the life of Christ and it like encapsulates it in you know, six or seven lines. 
And that is like the central point of Philippians. Everything else hinges around that or points back to that. Because he says this is, and he says you should have the same attitude, the same mindset of Christ. And then he tells this, this he quotes this confession. And then he goes on to say, and looking back, this, this, go back to this. That's what you're supposed to do. You see, the book of Philippians, and I think the call to press on, is really all about understanding and then living out a Jesus-shaped story in your life. I'm pressing on to live out a Jesus-shaped story. He says in Philippians 2, and this is the passage that we need to understand, that this is what Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, to hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. Since when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is is in this. He's kind of comparing, uh, in essence, what Adam failed to do and Jesus accomplished. Right? In, in the Garden of Eden, Adam, he, he decided as he was presented with this opportunity, his decision was to be selfish, was to focus on what he wanted, was to say, I want to be in charge and to rebel against what God had asked him to do. And Jesus, facing a similar temptation, instead decided to be humble, to be obedient, and to be sacrificial. And he did this out of love for the Father and love for humanity. He accomplished all of this out of a desire, out of a love for God and a love for people. And when he was asked, you remember when he was asked by one of the Pharisees, how do you sum up all of the law, right? All 316 or 614 commands and all this stuff, you know, how do you sum up? He said, well, love God, love others. You do that, it'll work out. And we see in Christ, that's exactly what he did. That's how he lived. And so the question is, when we see this, when we see that Jesus offered himself in in the way of sacrifice, in the way of humility, in the way of obedience, and he says, now, be like me. Follow my example. Shape your life around this. And in the book of Philippians, Paul goes on over the next few chapters. You can see the next section, he shows how his young protege, Timothy, has lived out this Jesus-shaped life in the way he has been self-sacrificing, in the way he has given. And then he goes to Epaphroditus and gives him as an example and says, he also has been self-sacrificing, he's been giving. And then he comes to himself in chapter 3 through chapter 4, and he says, this is what I'm trying to do, and I want you to to understand why, and I want you to imitate me in this every time you can. And then in chapter 4, he says, now listen, there's these two ladies in the church who seem to be fighting over something. And he says to, to these two ladies, he goes, listen, Come on, when you are fighting like this, when you are quarreling and bickering like this, you are not living a Jesus-shaped life. So figure it out. 
get together, resolve this. And then the last chapter, right, he goes on at the end of four, and he says, listen, you can live a powerful life that is full of contentment when you live out a Jesus-shaped life, a Jesus-shaped story. And he says, you know, it doesn't matter what, what type of circumstance I'm in. I can be in prison, which he was, I can be beaten, I can be on top of the world, I can have all this going for me. Either way, no matter what's going on, I am content because my life is not defined by what I want, but instead it's defined by the way Jesus told me to live, showed me to live a life of obedience and sacrifice and humility. He says, listen, I want you to have a Jesus-shaped life. In other words, uh, uh, the, the theological word there is a cruciform life. A life that is shaped by the cross that each of us lean into. And that's what grace invites us to do. It's not that grace says, okay, if you do this, and here's the three boxes you have to check, and if you check those, then at the end, God will say, all right, fine, you can come in. It's a, hey, because I've already invited you in, let me help you become all that I've created you to be. And, And Paul was passionate about this. Okay, this wasn't just a passive, oh, guys, okay, here's, I know, you know, in 2,000 years, there's going to be a church, they're going to need to learn this stuff, so I'm just going to write some of it down. Okay, he he was passionate. He he uses the word press, right? I'm going to press, not just I'm going to try to do something or I may walk this way. He says, no, I'm going to press on. I'll get really nerdy here for a second, the, the Greek where there is doikos, and it's this idea of leaning into it. If you go back to, uh, just a few verses to chapter 3, verse 6, Paul talks about what he used to do before he met Jesus. And he says that I was so zealous to make God happy by obeying the law. I was so zealous in what I was doing that I persecuted the church. The word persecuted? Doikos, exact same word. That was the zeal with which Paul now pursued a God, a Jesus-shaped life. In the same way that he was trying to stomp out this church thing because he thought it was going against God, now he is pursuing a Jesus-shaped story. And, and I just, I, I wonder if we truly get the passion that God has invited us to be part of. I mean, let's be honest, the last year and a half has been wonky in trying to understand what, what's important, what's not, where do I go, how do I think, what, and, and, and I can't show up, but now I can, but do I do? And, and, and I, what I've seen is a lot of people now are like, I'm not, what am I passionate about now? Is following, is following Christ the thing that drives me? Or is there something else? So, I just want to spend the last few minutes looking at those three characteristics of a God-shaped or a Jesus-shaped story, a cruciform life, as it is demonstrated to us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. This is what it means to live a Jesus-shaped story today, not just 2,000 years ago and not just on Sundays when you're in church, okay? This is what it looks like to live Monday through Saturday when that annoying neighbor you know, leaves their trash cans out for two days, Right When they park on the street and block your mailbox, and then three days later, you finally get a big chunk of mail that says mailbox blocked. Not that I've ever had that experience, or I'm talking out of my own frustrations, right? What does it look like 
Well, the, the characteristics of a God-shaped life, like I said, the first thing is a life of sacrifice. A life of living for others, of giving up my rights, sometimes even my privileges, for the sake of others. That's exactly what Jesus did, right? In, in uh, chapter 2, verse 7, what does it say? He, he emptied himself of his own divinity. He stepped out of the glories of heaven to become like us. I, I don't know if we will ever, until the day maybe we finally get there, that we can truly grasp what it meant for him to empty himself of that, to give that voluntarily, give that up. Let's be honest, too. Um, calling people to a life of sacrifice is not the best marketing tool, right? I mean, it, do we really want, you know, take out ads in the paper? Hey, come see what it's like to, you know, sacrifice and to not have everything you want and to give up your rights and privileges for other people. That's our church. It's not real sexy. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. And he said, now come follow me. We gotta be honest about this stuff. It's hard. And it's not just a nice little light and fluffy, hey, come follow Jesus, everything's happy. No, 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 no. Come follow Jesus and sacrifice because God has called you to something more than just a day-to-day -day existence of being nice and happy. God has called us to an existence that says, I want you to live this way. I want you to live with such passion and zeal that the entire world looks around and says, there's something about them that has depth and meaning and something that I wanna follow. I don't understand it, I don't get it yet, but I gotta figure it out. That's having influence on the world around you. But that means sometimes Emptying myself of privilege. And I know that's a buzzword, and I, just forget that for a minute. I mean emptying myself of my own rights so that others can hear about grace, can hear about life, can experience grace. And, and that's, that's not easy. It's not very, let's be honest, it's not real American. And so in this culture that we live in, that we breathe and swim in, right? That's just what it is. It's full of what we would call consumerism, where it's all about me, right? What do I get? How much, you know, what's the transaction here? If I give you this, do I get something out of it? Is it a bargain? Do I get more? What, it's all about me and what I get, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is about sacrifice and giving up for others. And a matter of fact, it's so much like that, I'm going to demonstrate it for you by leaving the glories of heaven and coming and living with you stinky people who will hate me, who will crucify me, so that you can see what grace looks like. You can see what sacrifice looks like. You can see what the kingdom of God looks like. And so the Jesus-shaped life is built on sacrifice, on, on giving to others when they don't deserve it, on sacrificing on behalf of others when they may not say thank you. And that's hard. 
And it's not fun sometimes. And sometimes you feel violated and used. But that's also why we're calling this dangerous grace. Yeah, how is, how is your life taking on a Jesus-shaped storyline in the way you sacrifice for the people around you? What, what are you giving up for the sake of the kingdom of God? What are you willing to sacrifice? I, I love the, it's, it's a famous quote now, but from Jim Elliott, the, the missionary who was actually killed as he was trying to share the gospel with uh, an indigenous people. And in his journal while he was at Wheaton College before he left for this, he, he wrote down, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The sacrifices we make now are letting go of things we can't keep anyway to gain that which only God can give us and therefore we can't lose. It's a life of sacrifice. It's also a life of humility. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't like this one. Okay, this is not a point that I really wanted to dwell on, so let's just skip it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got to look at it because I don't like to think about being humble. And, and here's the thing, right? Jesus, in, in chapter 2, verse 7, it talks about what he did, right? And it says, he literally says, he humbled himself and he took up a humble position. I guess we're supposed to be humble if we're going to have a Jesus-shaped life. And the interesting thing is, you know, the, the, the longer we go, the, the, the more humble we think we are, and then we start being prideful about how humble we are, and we get into this cycle. In yesterday, uh, yesterday morning in the men's Bible study, we, we, if you're interested in ever joining us, let me know. Uh, we do a Saturday morning early, uh, and, and we meet up at, the, up at the outreach center, but we were talking about Romans chapter 3, and and in that passage, there is a space where it says that we ought to all humbly look at ourselves, evaluate ourselves, before we start thinking about how great we really are. And it's that perspective of having other people who I've given permission to speak into my life. Because let's be honest, there are blind spots. I know there are blind spots in my life, things that I don't see about myself that others are like, man, I wish you'd see that. And, and I just don't see it, and so I need people around me who will speak that into me and say, hey, listen, when you do this, it really kind of annoys this group of people. I didn't even know that. Okay. Now, I wish I could say I was always that gracious in receiving feedback. <laughs> Ask my wife. I'm not always that gracious in, in the feedback loop. But, but that's what humility is about, right? It's about opening myself up to allow others to speak into my life, to, to say, listen, my way is not the only way. My values are not the ones that everyone else needs to cowtail to. My stuff is not more important than your stuff. I'm going to let you have the first dibs. I'm going to let you do this. Probably the best way to learn how to cultivate humility is listen first. Simple. Listen first. When you're going through things and you're hearing somebody talk, listen first. 
part of my job with uh, our denomination stuff that I do is I train coaches. And you know what the hardest thing to get them to do is to shut up and let the person they're coaching talk. Listen first. That's the first step, really, in developing humility. I'm still on that step, so I don't know what step two is. See, I I cultivate humility when I turn to God for my validation rather than expecting my validation to come from everyone else. I want to hear what God says about me. And when I'm at that point, I can then listen. I don't have to have my way. I don't have to have my opinion heard every single time I log into Facebook. I can instead listen. Life of sacrifice, a life of humility, And lastly, a life of obedience. That is the Jesus-shaped story. Sacrifice, humility, obedience. Jesus was obedient to God, to the Father, even when his flesh didn't want to be. Even when it was hard, even when he knew what was coming, and he's like, "This, this isn't what I would choose if I had other options. You know, the... There are two gardens in Scripture that we really need to notice. There's the Garden of Eden and there's the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, that's where Adam said, you know what, it's about me. It's about what I want. I want to become like God. I want to have my way. I want to, I want, I want, I want. And then the second Adam, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, not my will, but yours be done. Obedience following what God has called us to do. And and I can tell you, over time, the longer we follow through this obedience, the longer we listen, the longer we say, not my will but yours be done, I've noticed that my desires start to align with God's little by little by little. It takes time, it takes work, Sometimes it's not perfect, but the longer I do this, the closer my desires become a little more like what God would desire. And it gets just a little bit easier and a little bit easier, and then it gets really hard, and then it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier. But the idea is over time, right, I press on in my journey to take on this Jesus-shaped story. The more I submit to God's way, the more my life begins to naturally flow in that direction. And it really comes down to what my mind is set on, right? What what am I focused on? And that's why Paul says later in Philippians 3, or a little little bit earlier in chapter 3, he says, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, right? That perfection, that everything. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting what is in the past, I look forward to what lies ahead. I'm focused on on one thing. I press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. I press on because I have this one thing that I know God is calling us to. In Romans chapter 8, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh, on my desires, what I want, Adam. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. 
the writer of Hebrews. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, that's the exact same phrase that Paul uses when he talks about the heavenly prize. Those who have that calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle, as our high priest. God's given us grace, all of us. And he has started and is finishing a work in me, in you, in us, that will make us into who he created us to be. And the good news is we get to partner with him in the process. We're not passive. We get to be with him and and active in that whole process. Because here's the thing. My pressing on is not to finish God's work in me, but because he is finishing it in me every single day. This one thing I do, I press on into that, into what God is doing in my life. Not because I'm hoping to make him happy, but because he is already at work in me, and I want to lean into that. And this dangerous grace that he has offered me gives me the opportunity to completely screw it up and to throw it back in his face, and he still loves me. But it also gives me the opportunity to say, I want to live a Jesus-shaped story today and tomorrow and for the rest of my life. And I want to be part of a church that is filled with people who are saying, I want to live a Jesus-shaped story because what would happen, imagine what would happen if all of us decided Monday through Saturday to say, I'm going to live this way, and because of that, the people around me are going to start seeing what a God-shaped life could look like. They're going to start seeing what dangerous grace looks like. And we will have an opportunity to influence this community your community, this county, this state, with God's grace. Imagine if all of us said, you know what, that's the one thing. In the 80s, I wanted to be like Mike. Today, one, I know I can't be like him, but I want to be like Jesus, and I want to offer grace every person I run into. I want them to see grace dripping off of me. I want them to see what a Jesus-shaped story could be. And I hope you'll join me in that challenge to press on into that. Now let's pray together. God, we, um, we know that we don't deserve grace. Because if we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. So God, this morning, we thank you that you took a risk on us and offered us grace. You, You offered us love that was not deserved. And in the midst of receiving that, God, we now want to commit ourselves to to pursuing the example that Jesus gave us when he accomplished grace in his life and his death and his resurrection. God, I pray that Press Church would be a church that is truly pressing on into a Jesus-shaped story. May everyone around in this community and beyond 
see the Jesus story in the way we operate as individuals and as a community. Continue to show us how to be more like Jesus and lean into this life of sacrifice, of humility, and of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us now?